This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> In fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. And welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox podcast. Uh, I'm Dan Pavalli coming back at you without... Adam Frommel or Andy Bailey, who haven't been loving you guys as much as I have of late. But luckily, this time we are going to be joined by Justin Rowan from Fear the Sword, the Cleveland Cavaliers blog at SB Nation, Hoops Have It, and Press Basketball. Um, He's going to be here to keep me company. I'm very excited. So first off, Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. I I, I guess Andy and I, maybe we've had a falling out that I wasn't aware of on Twitter, and that's why he didn't show up. But um, next time, next time I talk to him, I'm going to let him know that I'm a little bit hurt that he's not here. Yeah, you know, I think our dozens of listeners want to know why he's been absent as well, and, and just the same with Adam. Um, and you, you and Andy have had some, or maybe my thinking of him and James Hollis, or all three of you. Have, have you and Andy had some like pretty epic Twitter debates? I feel skydiving this is amazing yeah but you know what else is amazing an iphone 6s for just 49 bucks at metro really imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera i'm switching that's smart you know what else is smart parachutes switch to metro and get an amazing iphone 6s for only 49 bucks metro by t-mobile Phone offer requires port-in of number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. You're, you're probably thinking of Andy and James. Um, I, I don't think we've had too, too many um, real big back and forth, but we've probably had a couple. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask you um, as a Cavs expert is, will Kyle Korver ever miss again? I mean, scientifically, I don't think it's really possible, right? <laughs> uh, no, of, of course, he's going to miss. Um, the one thing that kind of stood out to me when I looked at the tape of him in Atlanta and from the games I watched, it's, it's just remarkable how much work he still put in to getting shots. Like, he's really sprinting through three, four, five screens on a given play, drifting to the side when he's taking those three. So... It's going to be interesting to see what type of workload he gets, what type of looks he gets. Obviously, they're they're going to be a little bit easier than what he's currently been working with. Um, but with J.R. Smith out for a couple months, you would expect Corver to kind of maintain a similar workload to what he was getting in Atlanta, only with, uh, obviously, a higher quality shots. So um, I, I think it's reasonable to expect a little bit of an uptick in his minutes. Um I had tweeted this out the other day. He's played about 4,000 career minutes fewer than Richard Jefferson. So it's it's reasonable. That's incredible. To think he, it's reasonable to think he still has a, a fair bit left in the tank. And he, I, he, last time I checked, he was shooting almost 50% on wide open threes. And you have to expect that number is going to 
not even just the percentage, but just the number of wide open threes he'll get, you know, per game or per 36 minutes, you, you have to think that's going to skyrocket now. Yeah, for sure. And, and I believe he was about 56% on the cor- in corners as well. So, Jeez. Uh, yeah, or open corner shots, I should say. So he's going to, he's going to enjoy playing with LeBron. I think that's pretty safe to say. And is this going to be one of those seamless transitions, kind of like we saw from Channing Fry last year, where he just, you know, you plug and play and it, it just works? Yeah, I think JR's absence really does make it a more of a seamless transition just because he isn't going to have to adjust to a, a smaller role. Uh, he, he's going to come off the bench at least initially, but what is going to happen is he's going to close quarters with Kevin Love, and then he's going to start second quarters with um, Kyrie and LeBron. Um, that's what Lewis indicated to this point. So I I still think, even though he's not starting, he's going to get about starters minutes or at least minutes close to what he has in Atlanta. So it is going to be a more seamless transition for him. He's not going to have to adjust to trying to pick his spots in a, in a small bench role. The, the one thing I kind of worry about, and he doesn't, you didn't worry about it with Channing Fry, and Corver again doesn't seem like the type of guy you would have to worry about it with. But once JR comes back, and maybe it won't even be a problem this season because perhaps JR comes back on a severe minutes limit, um, or maybe he's just not right this year, and Corver's still getting close to the same amount of playing time he got in Atlanta. But you go from being, he wasn't really featured with the Hawks, but you go from playing these starter level minutes and preparing. Um, in that capacity, even when he was coming off the bench, as being maybe a more featured weapon, um, to sort of having to acquiesce to not even just LeBron, Kyrie, and Kevin Love, but you also have J.R. Smith when he comes back, or even Shumpert. Uh, do you ever worry about that type of adjustment and players getting used to that, or do you prepare the same way when you know you're not going to be as prominently featured? Yeah, I think you have to worry about some sort of an adjustment there. Um, that was an issue with uh, Mike Dunleavy, although he... He had been struggling a little bit since back surgery, so um, he had a few things kind of going in the wrong direction for him. But yeah, I think there's definitely some sort of an adjustment uh, when you have someone like Corver who has such an elite skill. Um, typically, but uh, Tyron Lue has managed to do is maximize those type of guys. He, he gets the most he can out of what Tristan Thompson does well. Um, whatever role players they have, like Channing Fry, they, they really do um, kind of feature him. And with JR coming back, I would kind of expect Corver to fill in similar minutes to where Channing Fry plays, which is uh, those LeBron plus bench lineups, where LeBron really just looks to get everybody else going. Uh, he, he's typically playing a power forward next to Channing Fry, and they basically just run pick and rolls with four shooters. So I, I expect Corver to get a lot of looks in those situations, but inevitably there is going to be some sort of an adjustment period going from a, a more featured role in Atlanta. Do you think he'll make it easier on, and these lineups are few and far between, but when you don't have Kyrie or LeBron on the floor, there, there seems to be that lack of playmaking on the Cavs or shot creation. Will he make it easier? I guess he has to make it easier on those other guys just for the sheer way defenses prepare for him. Um, the theory of Kyle Korver is just as dangerous as Kyle Korver, so he opens up lanes and maybe gets other guys. He's an understated passer as well, gets other guys better shots. So you, do you think that there's a boon there, or do you – I know LeBron has talked about it. Do you still think the Cavaliers are going to go hard after finding just uh, a third or second point guard? They're, they're definitely going to go to find out point guard it, it's going to help to some extent to have Corver in those situations but at the end of the day they, they still need another guy to initiate the offense because um, as it currently stands they can get away with this in a final series but it's all about keeping guys fresh right and, and not surrendering leads in those situations um, because when you, you look at the finals uh, the Cavs basically benched Delavidova and Moscow like they didn't need a backup center then, and they didn't need a backup point guard because LeBron and Kyrie were the two point guards. Um, but getting to that point, keeping those guys fresh so they can play those heavy minutes, that's going to require acquiring a, a point guard. The I don't even know if you can call it chatter, but the Raja, the Rajon Rondo stuff has to be like a like there can't be a contingent of people 
in Cleveland or Cavs fans that would think that'd be a good idea. Like, to trade no, for him, no, you would man. have to give up Shumpert. I mean, you could wait and hope the Bulls buy him out, but even if you got him for nothing, that just seems like such an unnecessarily toxic gamble. Oh, no, and, and Brian Windhorst had talked about this, too. There's no serious talk of trading for Rondo, and if the his direct quote or was... If the Bulls were to buy Rondo out, the Cavs' um, opinion on Rondo would be hell no. <laughs> they just have absolutely no interest in adding him. Um, he doesn't do anything that really helps the team. And is a bad fit, doesn't get along well with LeBron. Um, there's just no interest in that. Uh, um, the names they're most commonly connected to are Mario Chalmers, um, they're also keeping an eye on Darren Williams if he was to be bought out by Dallas. Um, but I'd say Chalmers is the most likely uh, guy to come in and take some of those minutes. Uh, Darren Williams, I actually just wrote something offhandedly about him, would be so interesting in Cleveland. And I also I even wonder if, and I, I guess there wouldn't be a point for Dallas's behalf, but the Cavaliers have that trade exception. They could technically foot the bill um, for his entire salary. Is that... Is that luxury tax penalty too steep to pay something like that? Just because they do have their biggest asset now is really that Andy V trade exception that I think is $9.6 million. Um, I try and rack my brain for other names because I don't think Dallas would just give Darren Williams away, especially when they're quote-unquote still within striking distance of a playoff spot. But there just don't seem to be, which is kind of weird given point guard is so deep, but there just don't seem to be these situations where you could imagine teams giving away other players for basically nothing. Yeah, I, I think the Cavs would only have an interest in him if he were to be bought out. Uh, they do have the trade exception, as you mentioned. Um, the, the other asset that they have, um, uh, reportedly their, their most popular asset that teams actually call about, is um, Seti Osman. Uh, he's a Turkish player. He's going to be coming over next year. Um, Chad Ford said he, he'd be a late lottery pick if he were to be coming out of the draft. Uh, he's kind of like an Andre Kirilenko and someone I know the Cavs would ideally like to keep. I think he, he might be a little more off the table now that they have Korver. Um, they, they kind of anticipated using him to get wing help. Um, he's someone that you can trade his rights and pair that with the trade exception. Yeah. Whereas you can't pair players with that are actively in the NBA and have NBA contracts with a trade exception. So that's part of the appeal there. Um, but no, I, I don't anticipate them really giving up an asset to get a point guard. I, I think they're going to kind of monitor the buyout market, monitor the free agent market. Um, I, I guess Jared Jackson, another name out there, but. Uh, I think oh, you know, guys are still scarred from the first time around with Jack <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it really wouldn't make sense to give up an asset because if you even just think about the possible players they'd be getting in return, there's no there's no point guard in, like, that salary sweet spot range where it'd be worth giving up a pick or, you know, a, a poor man's Andre Karolinko-type prospect for them. And, and even if there was, it's kind of like you said, once you get to the Eastern Conference Finals or the NBA Finals, you're not logging a minute of action without both Kyrie and LeBron on the floor, which completely negates any need you would have for that third playmaker. Yeah, exactly. Especially now that you have added another wing in Calcorver, too. You can have JR that kind of initiates some of the offense we've seen. Schumpert's been playing back at point guard and doing kind of a, a surprisingly good job of that this year. So, um, yeah, you're not giving up assets for a guy that isn't going to see meaningful minutes when it matters. Shumper point guard, or at point guard, that's not something we've seen since he was under Dan, uh, Mike D'Antoni, and it's been kind of interesting to watch because he hasn't been um, too bad, and again, I guess that helps, but I guess I'm, I still side with you. I can't envision them moving forward without picking up uh, just some sort of another point guard, um, and Mario Chalmers seems to be the reflexive, that's the one they'll go after. He's played with LeBron before, he's been quality, um, even when he was in Memphis when he was healthy. Um, that would be interesting. Nate Robinson looks like he's planning on making a comeback, but I, he seems too <laughs> he seems too K Felder, the older version of K Felder, for that to really work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think Chalmers would be the most likely candidate. He's going to be limited coming off that Achilles injury, but um, as long as he can pass the ball and shoot to some extent, 
um, you'll be able to at least eat some minutes. Because you don't exactly need a ton of help. They do stagger their uh, big three pretty well. Yeah. Um, and they try to, at least with Kevin Love, you, you have playmaking from high posts and stuff like that. Um, so you really don't need a lot from a point guard. Matthew Delvadova was always more of a combo guard than a real true point guard. So I think that's kind of what they are looking for. Yeah, I guess if you really, I actually haven't looked at it, but if, if we were really to break down the numbers, I would imagine even now in the regular season, it's probably like seven minutes or less per game that they're spending without either Kyrie or LeBron on the floor, maybe even five or less. Yeah, yeah, it, it would, and most of that would be garbage time. What I did find kind of interesting, and maybe it's not because the Cavaliers are just so head and shoulders above everybody else, but you have a Hawks team that is, is still fourth in the Eastern Conference. Even after moving Korver, they're saying, you know, don't, don't read into this as, as we're just going to sell, sell, sell. And there might be some merit to it because Korver's 35 and was going to be a free agent anyway. But you gave clearly the best team in the Eastern Conference, um, arguably a title favorite in many's eyes, even with Golden State out in the West. You just gave them Kyle Korver. And, you know, I guess you helped yourself with that future first-round pick, but it was... Just slightly bizarre to see a team in the East that is still so in the thick of the playoff race help out the Eastern Conference favorite like that. Yeah, it would really be something if they end up moving Millsap to uh, Toronto because then <laughs> just loading up the top of the Eastern Conference. So, um, yeah, it it obviously was a little bit of a surprise when I saw the Loge bomb and saw Corver's name tied to the Cavs, but... Um, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody else was really willing to move a first-round pick, and that was the big difference maker. Um, the Millsap tip is something I want to go back to, but in your eyes, really quick, do you see this Corver trade as making the Cavs title favorites, including the Warriors in that discussion? Or maybe you're someone who viewed them as title favorites even before um, this deal, but do you think that this Corver trade, for those who are on the fringes, between Golden State, between Cleveland, even after that Christmas Day matchup, do you think this gives them the edge, or are we still kind of where we were beforehand? I, I think it helps. Um, I would still call Golden State the favorite. I, I think the margin between these teams is a lot smaller than it was last year. I, I think last year the Cavs likely wouldn't win unless if it was for injuries and the suspension of Draymond Green and, and kind of everything that went their way. Um, this year, I I'd say the Warriors are still a favorite, but the Cavs do have a realistic chance at beating this team. Um, there's just been so much internal growth. Um, basically, every player that isn't J.R. Smith is better in a meaningful way this year. Um, and then you add Kyle Korver to that mix. Um, you you have LeBron now shooting near 40% from three again. Like There's just so many things that are going their way, and they're, they're getting Minnesota, Kevin Love, only this time he's playing defense. It's going to be a hell of a series, but I, I would still say just because of how much talent the Warriors have and the matchup problems that they create, um, I still think you have to kind of consider them to be the favorite, although I, I don't think it's nearly as big of a gap in talent as it was last season. This is definitely my third favorite version of LeBron ever. The, just when LeBron shoots threes highly efficiently, and if I had to rank his favorite seasons of mine's probably 2012, 2013, 2013, 2014, and then this one. Just when he's a three-point threat, and I think he even kind of saw it uh, in the Christmas Day game uh, at the very end when Kyrie had the ball and was in one-on-one, the lane is just so much more open because you all of a sudden have to respect LeBron as this catch-and-shoot threat when he's camped out in the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, absolutely, and, and he's, he's talked about it before, but he said that this team is the one he's always wanted to play with, where he can just kind of play in that facilitating role. Uh, he can just pick his spots. There, there's so many options, and kind of his unselfish nature is a big reason why I think Corver is going to be a fairly seamless fit. Um, it's it's just ridiculous what he can do when he does have that three-point shot um, and, and his jump shot in general back. Um, he came into the season saying he worked all summer on it, and Obviously, it's uh, paying off for him. Even just, and it's just not even like it's, oh, well, he's not really shooting them. He's shooting almost five a game. And so 
just when he's do I just I don't know how you defend them, especially now with Corver when you have LeBron hitting threes at an above average rate, where it's always like, well, if we can get LeBron to thirty three percent or something, you know, that's great. But now you have him at thirty seven plus, and I it's just you add Corver to that, I can't even wrap my head around it. Yeah, it, it's always entertaining to me. People um, that don't watch the Cavs a lot and, and do look at the on-off numbers, um, they don't really realize kind of the, I, I don't want to call it a death lineup, but what the Cavs do by subbing LeBron out early in the first quarter, and then you basically say, Kyrie and Love, you are capable of playing even with this other team's starters. And then when the starters go out for the other team, you have LeBron going in there, Typically with Channing Fry, J.R. Smith. Now you're going to put Kyle Korver in there. Bench units can't handle LeBron plus all of that shooting. Like they just will blitz. It's like the Kyle and, Lowry and bench lineup from Toronto, but on a bunch of steroids. Exactly. Um, it, I I don't necessarily know how you're going to go about defending that. I assume they'll probably put Richard Jefferson in there as well. He can shoot, makes the right play. So. Um, Basically, as long as Kyrie and Love can play even uh, against the other team starters without LeBron, it's going to keep that uh, lineup holding. Do you, I guess on that front, have you noticed any, I guess, progression there? Because the on-off numbers aren't nice to just Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving-led lineups. And I think I've watched some games where it looks like the Cavaliers are surviving in those situations. But you even see the nights where LeBron... Um, takes a game off uh, or where they're resting him, and then just certain stretches when he's not on the floor, it, it's like a double-edged sword because you all of a sudden realize, wow, LeBron is still this great that he's so important to the Cavs. But do you think at this point Kyrie and Kevin Love should have progressed on their own a little bit more? Is that just an irrelevant point? Um, I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. Often those nights where LeBron does rest, it's on the second night of a back-to-back. Um, the other thing that I have to factor in is really just – what a heavy load the, the Cavs do carry, um, or at least the big three carries, because um, they really have only had about seven or eight playable players. And when you take LeBron out of that and you take JR out of that, you lose two starters and, and you maybe have six or seven guys that are capable of playing. And Tyron Lou in those games has gone heavy with Jordan McRae, Kate Felder, a bunch of guys that typically don't see minutes. Um, and He'll, he'll limit Kyrie and Love's uh, minutes in those games as well. Um, I forget who had wrote about this the other day, but Kyrie's um, assist numbers when LeBron is off the floor basically are uh, top 10 for point guards in the league. Like his uh, assist ratio and stuff like that, he, he is moving the ball better. Um, we, we've seen a growth, but this is a flawed team. And really the play of the big three has kind of hit how shallow and flawed it is. So the, the the other thing to kind of factor in is LeBron is responsible for so much of the playmaking. Uh, all the sets they run, everything are, are kind of designed around LeBron. So you don't necessarily come up with a new game plan um, with a couple hours notice when they decide to rest them on the second night of a back-to-back. Um, so you got a team that basically has to improvise a lot, and I, I think that's why you see a lot of the offensive drop-off in those games. Uh, it's kind of similar to what happens when Draymond Green sits for the, the Warriors whenever he does miss time. You see their offense fall apart. Whenever you lose that kind of main initiator of the offense, there, there's going to be a hiccup. I, I would expect that if he were to miss a, a couple weeks and they, they had a practice in there, you'd see the Cavs look a lot more fluid than they do in those odd games where he sits. It eventually becomes important, though, right, for them to, to look more fluid in his absence because when you're looking at – we have to assume at this point he'll be in Cleveland forever. When you're getting toward, you know, when he's 35, 36, 37, you're not going to want him to average – I think he's over 37 minutes a game this year, right? So it becomes more important for that. Um, I know it's like you said, like the lack of preparation, and these are such anomalies that he's not on the floor, and he is so important that they design all these things around him. But I guess eventually you have to get to the point where you want to see um, Kyrie and Kevin Love be able to carry the Cavaliers, I guess, for longer on their own as LeBron gets older. Oh, definitely. I, 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 I think that's part of the game plan, too. 
Uh, they had said before the season that they wanted LeBron to play heavy minutes through November and December, and then they were going to kind of cut his minutes back uh, for about two months and then start to gear him up for the playoffs. Like, that was their plan. Uh, that's what his trainers had recommended. So um, I think we saw in December the Cavs were starting to go away from the LeBron initiating everything offense uh, and starting to design more plays with Kyrie. Kyrie, I believe, averaged about seven and a half assists a game for December, uh, which is obviously a lot more than you typically see from him playing off ball and was really initiating a lot of the offense. So I think that was in part preparation for that time when LeBron stops playing as many minutes as he does. I know you've been, I think we've had a discussion in the past once where you're not always, I don't want to say you're not always pro-Irving, but you're pretty fairly objective when it comes to Kyrie Irving at points. And I, I get a kick out of how people still judge him relative to all these other point guards um, when he's playing off LeBron. And even the fact that he's playing off LeBron, some people use it as a way to sort of disparage him. But his skill set, while I don't necessarily think it jibes with what everyone expects from a floor general, he's so easy to fit alongside other ball dominators like LeBron because of what he's able to do as a shooter and, and just off-ball scorer in general. So I, I know he's a player that has his flaws, but when we're talking about his progression or, or, or other things, we can't really compare him to these other point guards because, one, he's never really been that, but two, he's most definitely not that now because the Cavaliers don't need him to be and, and they don't really want him to be so long as you have LeBron as your end-all focal point. Right. I, I mean, you, you can have John Wall, someone who's used to initiating the offense all the time, come into Cleveland instead of Irving, and the expectation would still be that LeBron's initiating the offense because you want the ball in, in the best player's hand. Um, that's where LeBron's at his best. He's... Uh, his vision at his height is nearly unprecedented. He he creates for everybody. That's that's what he does. He he forces the defense to collapse. So you really want someone to play off ball. And outside of Steph Curry, there there might not be a better fit, uh, right? As a point guard than Kyrie in terms of skill set. And those those point guards who are able to play off ball a lot, or I guess are expected to play off ball a lot, those seem to be the ones that even when they're really good or borderline all stars, are the ones that. Um, get insulted or overlook the most. And uh, Kyle Lowry would be kind of an example, but he gets recognized for his defense. But you even just look throughout the league, like at a Patrick Beverly or, or George Hill, those are just the first guys to get overlooked because we're so, I guess is a collective intent on defining point guard as, hey, they have to be on the ball. They have to have insane assist rates and usage rates. Right. And, and I remember I tweeted this out a while ago, but... Basically, since Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons won the championship, only once has a team with a guy averaging over eight assists per game won a championship, and that was Dallas with Jason Kidd. And those assist numbers dropped off in the playoffs because they were playing a more balanced approach. I think the individual assists has become one of the more overrated stats in the yep, NBA. Absolutely. Team assists, team assists are very important, but I think you're seeing – with all these great offenses, the, the one kind of signature trait has been that they have multiple guys initiating the offense. With Golden State, you have Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green. They, they can all initiate offense and be offensive hubs and help get whoever the hot hand is, get them the ball. So um, I, I think it's a little overstated to say, okay, because this guy is the shortest guy on the court, he has to get 10 assists per game. Otherwise, he's not making people better. There's more than one way to make people better. The I agree with all that, by the way. The, the last Cavs-related question I have is what what is behind, I don't want to call this a Kevin Love revival or, or resurgence, but is there anything specific behind Kevin Love's success this year other than he's just more comfortable? Because when you look at some of his numbers, like even his, his touches at the elbows or in the post, they're not insanely higher or even higher than they were last year and let he's just been flat out amazing and looks so comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. Confidence is a, a big part of it. Um, something people forget is coming into last season he's coming off shoulder surgery. So even up until training camp, he wasn't allowed to do any uh, upper body weights. He wasn't allowed to do training. He was very physically limited. Um, so coming into camp this year, he, he bulked up again. He, he added some strength. 
Um, he, he's playing more confidently, and, and they're really emphasizing getting him the ball. Like, he, even if it's not coming in necessarily different spots, he knows he's going to get his touches. Um, he, they, they aren't running as much offense for J.R. Smith and stuff like that, well, at least when J.R. was in the lineup, um, because Love is now getting them those looks, and they're showing that, hey, if you're aggressive and you're getting to your spots, you're going to get rewarded with the ball. And, um, like, while, while the offensive kind of progression of Love and seeing him put up um, per 100 possession numbers similar to what he did in Minnesota, um, that's impressive. I, I didn't necessarily think it would be possible for them to do that with Kyrie having a career year, with LeBron still putting up a line like he does. Um, but the most impressive thing is just how well he's playing defensively. In addition to adding weight, what he worked on all summer was working on his mobility um, so that he could play defense at a higher level and kind of work on some of his physical limitations. And um, the dividends it's paying off right now are really, really exceeding what I expected this season. I think you can even look at that Warriors game on Christmas where he played almost 32 minutes and it just didn't look like the Cavaliers were ever at this huge disadvantage with him in the game. And if you get to a point looking ahead to the NBA finals where the Warriors aren't able to pull him off the floor, that's a big deal for Cleveland. That like, makes, that's a really big a deal. a huge, huge difference. I mean, they closed the Christmas Day game with Kevin Love guarding Draymond Green. Like, I, I don't think you're going to consistently do that. I, I think in the finals you'll probably have LeBron on him. But the fact that he can do that and, and the offense, the Warriors – are running aren't really exploiting the limitations that he does have because I'm, I'm not going to act like he's the second coming of the Kembe Mutombo who's <laughs> never going to be a great defender but there there was there's things that he does well he has active hands he's moving his feet quicker and if you can't really take him off the floor that really does kind of change how a series would look is it do you think it's reached the point where and again he was you like you said on Draymond Green in that game, but do you think it's reached the point where you can probably get away with him at center more in such a series when the I guess when the Warriors are going to go small and that might see him be switched on to Kevin Love more or Draymond Green more, or is if the Warriors really throw out the lineups of death, is that going to be where he's just at his biggest disadvantage? I don't I don't think he's necessarily going to play center in those lineups. I, I think they might still go with their starting lineup. Um, just because Tristan Thompson does um, add so much defensively and he has the mobility to switch on the wings. Um, we, we saw Tristan switch on to Kevin Durant uh, in Christmas Day. Um, we, we've seen him play well on Draymond. But if Kevin Love has mobility and he's not really getting exploited, you can at least put him on Andre Iguodala, who isn't shooting well from three this season and, and really looks kind of like a shell of himself of the player he used to be. So you can almost put him on him the same way that they used to put him on Harrison Barnes. And I, I think you can get away with that because as much as the, the death lineup does um, create matchup issues, if you're still out rebounding them and you're maintaining that size advantage and you're getting those extra possessions, if you can kind of play that, that lineup even and, and they don't have an advantage there, um, that really makes a big difference and their new and improved death lineup is not playing well in the fourth quarter so far so um, that takes chemistry and continuity something that they had in the past and don't have now um, so I don't know necessarily if they're going to be able to exploit the Cavs starting lineup with that small ball lineup this will actually be my last Cavs thing because you pointed out uh, Tristan Thompson one of the biggest victories of this LeBron, this LeBron era in Cleveland seems to be the Cavs getting this 20-something guy who never really projected as this high-uses offensive player, but probably could be elsewhere on a different version of this team might have gotten more touches and, and had a bigger role on the offensive end. They've gotten him to buy into this role, and they had the whole contract snafu, but that's really whatever when you think about it. But you have someone like him in his prime. He's 25 and he's going in his third season with LeBron where you don't want to use the word marginalized on offense because he sets great screens and then he dives to the basket really well. But some guys in his position, especially with his draft day status, wouldn't want 
um, to be in that role. And the fact that he's bought in, even with LeBron there, I know people give LeBron a lot of credit, but the fact that he's bought in regardless of the circumstances, that's also huge for this team. Yeah, it probably helps that they were, uh, LeBron and Tristan were close, basically going back to when uh, Tristan was in high school. Um, but yeah, his his demeanor is basically what separates um, a championship-level role player from guys that just don't fit in. Um, he, he doesn't want or expect more. He understands exactly what his role is, and he's improving in the areas where they needed him to improve. He's dramatically improved his rim protection this year. He continues to grow defensively. Um, while he has more offensive capabilities than he shows, he knows that that's not necessarily his place. Um, the biggest offensive addition that he's made to his game this year, uh, and it's something that doesn't necessarily show up, but he's improved his passing on those short pick and rolls. He's getting the ball and he's kicking it out and he's finding the open man, which gets swung a couple times until one of the Cavs' good shooters is wide open. Um, so him adding that passing out of the pick-and-roll makes him that much more dangerous as a pick-and-roll threat, and he's, he's really embraced his role, and the team's fortunate to have him. And while the contract looked like a lot at the time, him getting about $16 million a year in, in this new collective bargaining agreement is... Um, pretty much below market value. He's getting less than somebody like Bismack Biombo, who basically does everything Tristan does at, at a worse level. I think the thing even then that would have been easy to justify if, if you would have even given him that deal scaled to today's market is you were kind of also paying him, uh, as we were just talking about, to make that sacrifice in the current role that he's in. Um, almost like he could be a, a bigger piece somewhere else and and you need to pay this guy in his early 20s um to make the necessary sacrifice that you need him to make Mm -hmm. oh absolutely i I think that was definitely part of the incentive and part why he was pushing for more money was well beyond having rich paul as an agent um he, he wanted to kind of financially secure himself when he knows that he's not going to be in a role where he can showcase his skills and earn a bigger contract uh, in the more traditional way. So with the Cavs in the rear view, you're in Canada. Um, Paul Millsap has been linked to the Raptors along with five other teams, five or six other teams aside from the Raptors. If you're Masai Ujiri, are you giving up a real package to get Paul Millsap? Assuming the Hawks aren't going to sell ridiculously low and want you know your first round pick and and that Clippers first round pick is just the primary bait and then filler because even when you look at any potential cap trek that Toronto would give up you know these these guys are valuable to them you you look at Terrence Ross you look at Patrick Patterson the only real um, cap trek they have right now would be Jared Sullinger and that's just because he is yet to play for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think you'd still be willing to move some guys. Uh, I would package Patrick Patterson in a deal for Millsap because, I mean, Patterson and Millsap are funny because they're similar players. Patterson does everything well, and Millsap does everything very, very well. Um, like, I think that would be a seamless fit replacing him. Um, Beyond Patterson and Ross and, and maybe picks for Sweetener, I, I wouldn't really go a whole lot more than that. Just because while it makes you a much better team, I don't think it necessarily gets you over the hump. Uh, we talked about Thompson before. I, I don't have the numbers on me right now. But over the last couple of years with Thompson on the floor, Millsap basically shoots 30% worse. Like, oh, yeah, I saw you tweeted that uh, like a week ago or something. Yeah, I think one year he shot like 27%, 134 uh, for a playoff series. It was like 35. Like he, he really does neutralize a lot of what he does. And I don't think even if you add him to Millsap, the Cavs probably still have three, arguably three out of the four best players in that series. So um, I really don't think it's enough to close the gap. So I wouldn't mortgage my entire future on it. But I do think if you do make a move for him, it, it does help um, Toronto – get viewed as a, a more serious team, um, a team that can make a definite run to the Eastern Conference Finals, because as currently constructed, uh, I think they, they're the favorite to play the Cavs in the Eastern Conference Finals, 
but I, I think it's far from a sure thing and continued success if you try to market Toronto as a team that has established a good culture and is improving. Um, I, I think that has to be a priority, even if you aren't necessarily going to win the championship. I get the Millsap to Toronto idea in theory, and I like it in theory, but it's just like to me for a guy who's going to be 32 and going to free agency, it's so tough for me to reconcile the idea of the Raptors paying him, DeRozan, and then presumably Kyle Lowry, what would probably amount to like 90 or 100 or more million dollars a year between the three of them when it's not going to definitively, and I can't even use the word definitively because the Cavs are the Cavs, but it, it, you don't look at them and go, wow, they just closed the gap between them and Cleveland. And while, while Ross isn't this star and, and while Patrick Patterson isn't this star and he's going to be a free agency, they're so much cheaper. And, and even when you look at Patterson going towards free agency, he'll be so much cheaper. They give you so much more flexibility to maybe headline a blockbuster for a guy who's already locked down, for a guy who's a little bit younger because in a way don't you kind of have to play the long game a little bit because mid-season acquisitions they don't really tip the scales all the time because you have to account for incorporating them while barely ever practicing and Millsap he's a great guy off the ball and he'll help on defense but he's the guy who also wants the ball on offense and now you have to uh, integrate him into a system that has DeMar DeRozan already and has Kyle Lowry playing off the ball pretty much as much as any other point guard not named Stephen Curry right now. So it's just, I like it in theory. It's just tough for me to get on board with it, knowing what it, it would cost and knowing that it wouldn't um, give them necessarily a great shot at beating the Cavaliers. Yeah, it, you're correct. It would be about $90 million to $100 million for those three players. And when you consider Lowry's a, a 5'11 guy, that's going to be, like, he's a year younger than LeBron. Um I, I know they, they kind of they look at their average age and say, okay, well, we can wait out the Cavs. Um, you look at your most important players, and you've got Lowry that's a year younger than LeBron. you got Kevin Love, who's basically the same age as DeRozan. you got Jonas Valanciunas and Kyrie that are the same age. Their timeline is the exact same as the Cavs. And, and if they're going to strike, it would have to be now. Um, but as you said, if you're committing to... Lowry, Millsap, and DeRozan that much money, and you're not getting over the hump, that, that can really, really hurt the future of the franchise. And I, I get that players like Millsap aren't available often, and those different makers don't really come on the market, and if they do, they typically have some sort of flaw, usually with character, but um, I, while I would be somewhat aggressive trying to get Millsap, I would also keep that in my mind before I, I gave up too much. And I guess you also have to look at it as, at some point, I know a lot of general managers, and probably Ujiri specifically, would probably always look at it as, let's just sign our guys and we'll deal them later. We're kind of moving past the point where every contract's going to be movable because the cap spikes are going to settle at some point and then again you're dealing with Millsap and Lowry two very high caliber pl players but once they're making max or near max money and they're entering their mid-30s those guys become so much tougher to move if that core flops for some reason yeah yeah I, I completely agree and funny enough as well as DeRozan played this year I think you have a lot more options if you kind of moved on um, and, and didn't pay them as much as they did um, especially when you look at how well Norman Powell, Terrence Ross, and all these guys are playing. I think you really would have a lot more flexibility this summer. Um, but I also do understand the contract and with the way he's been playing this year. Um, it, it's, it, it doesn't look like a bad contract or anything, but I, with the amount of talent that they do have on the wing, with Terrence Ross, with Damari Carroll, with Norman Powell, uh, with Corey Joseph, I can play some um, off guard as well. Um, it, it really seems like they need to redistribute the, the talent that they do have. And I, I guess that would be Norman Powell might be the guy that makes paying a pretty premium for Millsap via trade at least okay. Because if you lose Terrence Ross, you can completely and already envision Powell just sliding in and taking over those minutes, and, and you're not going to experience any uh, statistical dip. 
No, not at all. And, and Norman Powell is a much stronger defender as well, which is one of the areas where Toronto really needs to improve. Um, the thing I kind of want to close on is you had written an article um, a little while back, um, actually very recently, I correct myself, about why you think the Blazers should trade Damian Lillard. Um, what is the what is the crux of, of that argument for you? I know you were telling me before we started that you don't believe necessarily that he makes the Blazers worse, but you see the no, appeal no, of no. moving um, and, and I clarified early in my article that I'm, I'm actually a Damian Lillard fan, and by no stretch of the imagination am I um, blaming him for their slow start. What the Blazers have, um, similar to Toronto, um, is talent that isn't evenly distributed throughout the roster. They, they have too many guards and wings. Um, and really, I think either Lillard or McCollum, both of them would be maximized if they were playing as a point guard without a high usage guard next to them. I think it really gets tough to play two undersized guards that aren't strong defensively um, together meaningful minutes. And basically, I was making a case for why I would trade Lillard over McCollum, although I, I did clarify at the end that if you could get a similar offer for McCollum, I would be all over that. Um, but the incentive for trading Lillard over McCollum is you stick with a guy that's younger in McCollum. Uh, he's a little bit cheaper. And because of the name recognition of Lillard, I think you would get a larger return and you'd be more likely to be able to pair one of the Blazers' bad contracts like Evan Turner or Festus Azili, uh in a potential deal. I wouldn't trade Lillard unless you got kind of a cornerstone piece back. Like I, I'd look for a guy like a DeMarcus Cousins, um, some somebody of that ilk that would make a difference in their front court and kind of make them a more balanced attack. Um, but really the issues that they have come down to the roster and it's trying to move one of the redundant talents, which I, I find McCollum and Lillard together to be a little bit redundant, but moving them to have a more complete roster. And I think Zach Lowe's touched upon it a bunch uh, at ESPN.com where he's talked about the Blazers may reach a point where they need to choose between Lillard and McCollum. And I think when you're looking at this season, Lillard's, it's like you said, he has the name recognition, so he's probably going to command a bigger return. But um, McCollum's contract uh, extension hasn't kicked in yet, so he's in that weird spot where his outgoing value it just dwarfs his incoming value for the Blazers, so it's hard to get um, a potential offer for him. But I wonder if, assuming the Blazers continue down this path without turning around and their defense has been so bad, I can't imagine that it will. I, I still feel like the Blazers would um, trade McCollum before they would Lillard just because of how we've seen the reports where everyone just respects his voice in the locker room um, so much. And I, I do think that McCollum, especially after the season he's having now, is reaching a point where if the Kings and the Cousins were beyond repair and Cousins rejects their extension or makes it clear he doesn't want to be there, uh, I think McCollum would probably be an, an actual starting point, not even necessarily for Cousins, but for a deal like that just because he'll all of a sudden have the salary that allows you to match the incoming salary of higher profile guys. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it's a good problem to have for the Blazers. They have two tremendously talented guards and, and really it's a testament to how good McCollum is that I, I really don't know how much of a drop off there would be um, going from Lillard to McCollum at, at the point guard position. He, he really did step up in that time that Lillard missed, and um, he's really one hell of a player. So it's um, they're in a good position here, that's for sure. If you do, you think they'll end up moving one of them within, let's say, the next eighteen months? We'll say before the two thousand eighteen trade deadline next February. I would say so. That's interesting. It'll definitely be something to monitor. Um, well, Justin, I appreciate you coming on. It was um, a lot of fun. Um, if you guys would like to talk to Justin on Twitter and get at him about his Cavs takes and Damian Lillard takes, <laughs> you can find him at Cavs Anada. That's C-A-V-S-A-N-A-D-A. -A -A. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. 
You can get at Andy on Twitter at Andrew D. Bailey. Adam is also on Twitter. He is at Frommel09. That's F-R-O-M-A-L-09. And you can get all of us at the at Hardwood Knox Twitter account, which has been dormant, and we'll try and make sure it doesn't stay that way. Um, but until next time, everyone, there will be no shout out for Benno Udry until Adam and Andy come back. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. (laughs) In fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right, get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right, get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.